Um, let me start with grounding us uh, where I am, and thank you for um, your acknowledgement of the stolen lands that you're on. Um, uh, I'll do it in Nunga. Um, uh, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands and uh, the Noongar people um, whose, whose language is sensitive to um, the bird calls that you may hear outside uh, right at the moment. Um, and my little Noah, who's 18 months, um, one of his first words was kaka, which is the kookaburra here. Um, and uh, it's it's beautiful this morning hearing him say that on the balcony as he acknowledged uh, um, in the language of uh, the people who have lived here for at least 30,000 years, the dating in Western Australia on these lands. Um, uh, in, in terms of um, other formalities, um, let me go old school and just say, um, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, my uh, boast. Be in his name, may the afflicted hear and rejoice. Come exalt his name with me. Let's do that together. Um, that's old school, but that's that's how some of us roll. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Um, well, we are just very thrilled and appreciative of you making time to be with us uh, this morning. Um, we thought we would, you put up on the Patreon that we were going to chat about the future of faith, which I thought was a very lofty uh, sounding aim for this morning. So let's get stuck into it and see how we go. Um, uh, first question. So we've heard you at times describe yourself as uh, Anabaptish, uh, as in uh, coming from or uh, influenced by the Anabaptist tradition. And I know that there are also uh, other streams of the church and other strands that um have really strongly influenced you and your your activism and your theology and your discipleship and approach to community. So we're just wondering if you could um, kind of give us a sketch of what some of those key influences have been uh, for you and how they inform uh, what you do now and and um, and what you've been doing for more than twenty years um, across across the spectrum of activism and, and faith and uh, and church and community. So yeah, sure, uh, free reign there. Yeah. 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 Um, uh... I was really pleased to hear mention of Narwhals in a worship song. I hadn't heard that song before. I dig it. Um, that, that song was cool. Uh, let's come back to Narwhals and how it relates to Anabaptism. There is, in Jared's very neurologically diverse, there, there is a thread there to, to follow. But maybe um, we can start, uh, if we were to ask each other, what do we know of Anabaptism? What, what are the first things that kind of come to mind? If, if people want to unmute just for a second and popcorn um, Anabaptism, what, what comes to mind? I see Paul moving his microphone. Paul, you, you might have just volunteered yourself, brother. <laughs> uh, I don't don't know a whole lot about it, but uh, I would say that it is uh, more more open and inclusive from what I've been able to figure out so far. Great. I think there's some Amish who who, who might have a case that. It's not as open, but I think that's great, Paul. And there's definitely uh, what you're pointing to is um, is something that is uh, a reality in parts of the Anabaptist tradition. That's brilliant. Thanks. Um, was it the Hodges? Uh, I noticed that a microphone went off and there was a hand on the couch. As us preachers say, I see that hand. Who was who's that? Peacemakers. Definitely Peacemakers. Goes, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so with the exception of the Munster incident, which um, everybody should should Google. That's not um, a baptism. It's fake anabaptism. <laughs> well, I mean, now we're going, Jeff. So, so let's go there. Um, th this is the Hodgie's um, fault. But I actually think that Munster... Uh, so here's a little sketch of Munster. There's, there's two blokes, both of them are named John or Jan, but we'll translate it into English. Um, and anabaptism um, is uh, from the German, so Anna meaning re. So Anna is not a woman and she wasn't a Baptist. Um, and it's not anti-baptism uh, or, or anti-baptist. Uh, no one's got a problem with Baptists, bless the Baptists. Anabaptism literally means the rebaptizers. So in the 16th century, um, so the 1500s, um, you've got Martin Luther nailing his diss track of 95 points to the Wittenberg door and uh, in response to um, the Catholic church. So usually in people's telling of the everybody forgets about like um eastern orthodoxy um so but we'll, we're in europe so we'll, we'll keep it um uh just a conversation about catholicism and protestantism uh, but as some uh historians and sociologists talk about anabaptism came out of both um, catholicism and protestantism sometimes referred to as the radical reformation so um depending on your telling uh, this is um, more radical, um, or some people might say more fundamentalist. Um, some people say uh, there's a lot of propaganda when it comes to the Anabaptist tradition. And usually what people summarize with um, is peacefully, simply together, right? So there's the um, commitment to the nonviolence of Christ. Um, there's an elegance or simplicity when it comes to theology that's embodied. So it's actually about um, uh, how do we embody uh, a witness to this um, way of Jesus and that it's communal, that it's inherently together. Um, so the rebaptizers wasn't a name that they gave themselves. It was a name that um, uh, both Protestants and Catholics used of them uh, to say that they don't take baptism seriously and that's why they do it a second time. Um, the Anabaptists themselves um, uh, would say that they're actually taking baptism more seriously, that baptism wasn't about am I a member of um, uh, the, the state um, or uh, but because to get citizenship at the time in a place like Saxony, uh, where Luther was, you'd literally need to be baptised. Um, so when Michael Sattler said that his daughter wasn't going to get baptised, it wasn't merely a, um, a spiritual statement. It's actually a political statement as well about how we organise life, uh, what our true identity is. And for the Anabaptists, they saw um, uh, baptism as being incorporated um, in the person of Jesus in Christ, in a community that can't be separated from Christ, um, to live as Christ lived in the power that rose him from the dead. And so for Anabaptists, there's usually a focus on um, Sermon on the Mount. There's a focus on um, uh, being radically Christ-centered in how we read scripture, in how we understand spirituality, um, in how uh, faith is practiced. Um, but Munster comes up and, and Jeff's responding, going, that's not real Anabaptism. So the cool bits of Munster is they got rid of money um, uh, and they shared all in common. Um, the not so cool bits is that it's maybe proto-communism in that it was completely authoritarian. And these two Johns that I mentioned, um, one of them, uh, a shoemaker, a cobbler, um, uh, the, the other 
also having another manual trade that I can't remember off the top of my head, but the other one was a visionary. And they basically took over this city, um, killed everybody within it that wasn't down with their um, uh, vision. And uh, then uh, uh, John, who uh, wasn't the cobbler, the other one who was the visionary, he had um, a, a vision that he was the new Gideon. And so they were making this new Jerusalem and uh, he took um, 12 of his disciples out against thousands of um, Catholic and Protestant armies um, and <laughs> was, was slaughtered. Uh, the next dude went, um, this is all according to God's plan and instituted um, polygamy. And what was the other um, big change that um, oh, made himself king of this new Jerusalem? Um, yeah. Their little like, communist like expression was completely obliterated but the cool thing is and people don't want to talk about this they want to go disassociate but what it was was a bit like the peasants revolt is here you have um, poor people reading the scriptures for themselves and it was a, a massive experiment in getting it wrong and um, on the other side of this they were like maybe our visionary experiences of God need to pass through Jesus and so part of the um, emphasis in Anabaptism that all our um, spiritual experiences need to run through the life of Christ are directly related to this. And the other deep conviction was, um, uh, yeah, maybe less Gideon and uh, more the Galilean. So um, less swords um, and, and more um, uh, taking up towels and washing feet. So um, Anabaptism at its best is those who are seeking to be part of this 500-year-old um, tradition of radical Jesus-centeredness um, that rejects all forms of violence. Anabaptism at its worst often comes from um, people who are as pale as me, who um, come from uh, rich nations such as uh, the one that um, I'm living in, uh, and see Anabaptism as a safe place to hide from working through um, uh, the other forms of church. And so please don't make of Anabaptism a place to pray. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those Christendom Christians, or thank you, God, that I'm not like those other Christians who don't have a commitment to nonviolence. Um, Anabaptism isn't a place to have a more self-righteous stance over others. Anabaptism is a confession of we are all prone to doing monsters. How's that? How, did, I, did I land that? Awesome. Yeah, you fully landed. Can that, we talk about tarmac? <laughs> Please, narwhals. So um, in the 1980s, there was a um, uh, Inuit man, Lars was his first name, who was uh, fishing in the traditional ways of what we now refer to as um, Greenland. And uh, his people, um, since his stories have been told, have always hunted narwhals and have a relationship with narwhals that um, uh, are profound, like the, um, uh, to, to take terms that um, Aboriginal leaders here um, sometimes find problematic and apply them elsewhere, which is also problematic. But um, in terms of the dream dreaming um, of their cultures, um, the relationships with narwhals are um, incredible. Uh, in the 1980s, he was, um, so people know what a narwhal looks like. It's kind of like a beluga kind of, but like more unicorn and less. So, um, and people know what a beluga looks like. Ask your kids, like this is important stuff. Um, Theologically, yeah, I, I, Hodgies, they've, they've got my back. They, they know what's going on. Um, 
<laughs> he was hunting and he um, hunted something that never been seen before, which was a beluga narwhal um, hybrid that they think because of the changes in our climate um, that uh, these species that weren't thought to mate, um, you know, like a mule is like half... Uh, what donkey and horse so the same thing is happening um and they called it um is it like an um i can't remember the hyphenated term but you can look this up doing theology right now in the moment that we find ourselves in um as we transition from uh, kids songs to those beautiful um common hymnal songs that we sung to these kind of discussions which can be very like ephemeral and stay in our head and become ac academic um, there is something happening because of the climate of this moment that we're living through, such a time as this, Esther readers um, uh, might insist, that there are hybrids that we hadn't seen before, that are new adaptions, um, uh, that are both um, somewhat concerning, and maybe we need to name it as such because it does name um, the uh, incredible changes that um, we're going through, like um, in terms of um, the climate, um, but also um, hope-filled in that th there are forms of um, resilience from both species that are being put together for the first time uh, that might mean that um, things uh, can continue in a way that we haven't seen before. And so without getting too pendy, maybe, maybe that hybrid, the beluga narwhal kind of thing and asking about Anabaptism, um, with the exception of like Mark and Marion for a while, Mariah Hurst, um, there aren't Mennonites in Australia, Mennonites being the largest kind of umbrella group um, in the Anabaptist family that include um, Hutterites and um, our, our friends from the Bruderhof community and famously the Amish. Um, but Men uh, Mennonites is what people usually identify with, um, uh, usually because they're progressive in their politics, they're very formed after the resistance to the Vietnam War, um, and so for a bunch of us lefties, it's like an easy place to land, Jesus-centred, and they're on about anti-war stuff and social justice. Um, but let's be aware that in engaging these traditions, we're something of a hybrid that hasn't been seen before. And we need to own that both in things that we need to um, confess and things that are there for forms of resilience. Um, so, uh, dear White House, um, your drawing on the Anabaptist tradition is a beautiful thing, but let it be a beautiful thing in such ways that um, you don't ever see it as a form of um, pride or being better or more evolved than others, uh, but a deeper integration of things that would be tempted to run from. Um, Munster is never far behind. <laughs> wow. So this is why you should just. All right, so we're done with Jared for the day. Um, <laughs> should we just leave a, a CLA moment there for, for a minute or so, just to soak that in and uh, try and reconfigure our lives radically? <laughs> Naluga, that's what they're called. That, that's the hybrid. Naluga. Naluga. All right, well. Google it. Naluga. I will, don't you worry. Ah. <laughs> oh. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, I'm wondering whether, so as you're going through that, I, I would also love to hear um, how, so you've kind of sketched out the Anabapt part 
in the in the ish part, I, w- I would love for you to talk a bit more about how you have also been shaped. I know you've been deeply shaped by the black church tradition in the US. Mm. Um, you have been trained and mentored by Reverend Jim Lawson and Vincent Harding and some of the, the luminaries and the heroes of uh, the freedom movement, uh, aka the, the civil rights movement. Um, I, w- I would love for you to just share uh, with our community some of what um, what that has meant to you, how that has uh, shaped you and um, and how uh, that witness and the way that you have embodied and carried on that witness in your in your own activism, um, what what we can uh, learn from that? Yeah, sure, CJ. Um, uh, I mean, that part of and, my... and sorry and and sorry for asking such a you know that that's a very massive massive question that we're condensing into a short period of time. So I apologise for that up front. Um, no, no, CJ, it's but fine. please, if, it's if fine. there's yeah, anything yeah. that you want to pick out from that, that'd be awesome. Um, and uh, my co-conspirator in Christlike Crime, Dr. Drew Hart, who I do the Inverse podcast with, um, is such a gift to the world at the moment in the way that he has uh, brought these two traditions together that um, uh, he, he has been formed in, like third generation um, uh, black uh, preacher. Um, and uh, I've been like so graciously adopted into, um, uh, which is, is phenomenal, um, for me. But one of the things that drew in his scholarship brings together is both the prophetic black church tradition, um, which has been formed, um, uh, under a form of Christianity, um, that was so comfortable with everything Jesus said, not so with you. So forms of lording it over, um, but explicitly like, um, the white supremacy, which initially in America expressed itself as land theft and then, um, uh, like people theft and then slavery and then, um, uh, segregation, um, into the forms that, uh, are now present today that this tradition in um, resistance to a form of Christianity, which um, blesses that form of oppression has had a radical centeredness on Jesus um, read through the Exodus story and that God is in the business of deliverance. Um, And uh, while the Anabaptist tradition might focus on um, nonviolence, the prophetic black church tradition has focused on deliverance, um, or liberation, um, uh, or as Drew mentions in his text, like really where, um, his latest book, um, who will be a witness really, we're talking about question of salvation, but both the Anabaptist and the black church traditions will say that how, um, forms of Christianity, which have played chaplaincy to forms of oppression have turned salvation into something quite separate from discipleship quite separate. So it's a a question of, um, one's disembodied soul in quite Gnostic ways, um, going somewhere else, sometime else, um, that might have very little to do with right here, right now, while, um, biblically, um, salvation is about deliverance. It's about liberation. It's about God setting people free. Um, the, the conversation between these two traditions for me, um, uh, which are far more exciting than, um, formative experience for me that are 
like <laughs> far less cool, like the restorationist movement, like um, the churches of Christ. Like uh, I'm a churches of Christ lad. Um, I, I barely feel like it's church unless we share communion. Um, I, I'm still kind of old school like that. Uh, I'm dangerously um, uh, regenerationalist when I consider baptism. Uh, I think um, baptism isn't just an outward sign of an inward thing. It's a, it's a, um, a personal appropriation of a coming of the new world in a community that teaches us what it is to wash one another's feet as we confess that we're tempted to take up the sword. So they're, they're things that are in the back of the mind for me. Um, but the, this hybrid, um, uh, what did we decide that the term was? Um, Nalagas that has been for me between these two traditions um, held by the formation of a, um, a charismatic and, and Pentecostal expressions of um, churches of Christ experience in uh, Australia um, have provided such a, a sharp focus on not some um, uh, idea of Christ, which is abstract, but on the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, his life, his examples, his teachings, um, and allowing discipleship to be as dangerous as he is, um, uh, allowing um uh, <laughs> uh, allowing, um, yeah, Jesus' example, I think some Christians would say, isn't very Christ-like, um, which raises all kinds of questions about, well, how do you understand Christ and who is your definition then? And what is it for us to allow um, these challenging traditions, not to appropriate them, um, but to appreciate um and be incorporated at the invitation by them, which is an act of humility, which Willie James Jennings would always insist um, Christian Christianity, uh, the Christian experience starts with, um, that this is never our story, um, but we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us into this Jewish story of the creator of all that is, who hears the cries of the oppressed and is in the business of setting people free. And so what does that mean for us um, as outsiders to this story to be invited in? Beautiful. I have a question. Hi, <laughs> um, You've spoken of being Anabaptist and also being very heavily influenced by the black prophetic tradition. Is that how you say it? The prophetic black church tradition? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, seeing that we're also geographically much closer to Asia than mm. um, Europe and America, have you also been influenced by the Asian church? Is there even such a monolithic thing? Yeah, I mean, when we talk of Asia, we're talking of... I mean, Chev, you and I have personally had this conversation uh, previously about the number of, um, uh, uh, like language groups alone that we're talking about when we use descriptors like um, Asian, let alone cultures within um, those language groups. Um, uh, and when we talk about closeness and proximity, um, I've had some deeply moving experiences of being um, mentored by people like Paulus Hotono, um, who's a Mennonite pastor um, in uh, uh, Java, Indonesia, and um, the influence of um, what those two polices in those um, contexts, um, both Chinese, Indonesian um, men who have found a home in the Mennonite tradition, which is part of the Peace Church tradition, the Anabaptist tradition, um, 
uh, and their influence on me, particularly um, after some of you know that um, I had friends that celebrated my 18th birthday with me who um, were murdered uh, in the Bali bombing in 2002 in October um, and uh, found myself uh, working with these Mennonites in Indonesia who were reaching out to the extremist groups who were responsible for funding the death of friends who um, were at my 18th birthday. Um, and this is where, um, whether we're talking about the influence of the black church witness or the Anabaptist witness and the importance of that and the similarities is that they both named there are forms of Christianity um, uh, whose theological projects are actually have made peace with everything Christ came to overturn and have victory over. Um, and the influence of these Indonesian Christians on me in practice was seeing them um, meet in the madrasas um, where uh, this kind of extremism um, was being taught and recruited and um, actually seeking to bless them, uh, being involved in peace building projects with them, forming friendships at the risk of their life with them. Um, uh, when the tsunami hit, um, uh, organizing ways of rebuilding that didn't create a power differential. So here are the Christians um, up here and here are the Muslims here, but instead approached their leaders and said, why don't we get our young people together to um, uh, rebuild these homes together and we'll have several breaks and uh, we can, they realized that eating together was going to be difficult um, uh, culturally, but they said we can play soccer several times a day. And so having young people um, from a community that feared um, their Muslim neighbors, and I'm, I'm not merely talking like um, irrational Islamophobia. Um, I'm talking about being in a city where, um, yeah, churches have been burnt down yeah. and bombed, and that's right. Yeah, um, uh, uh, and with young people who, because of their poverty and uh, vulnerability, are so susceptible to these um, uh, uh, ideologically violent forms and perversions of um, Islam, um, and then meeting together and doing peace building together. These Mennonite. Indonesian Christians have fundraised for leaders of these madras to go through university accredited peace building courses. Um, these are Christians like, uh, so when you talk about like Christian witness and, and what does this Anabaptist witness look like, this isn't some safe kind of convictions um, uh, around like peacemaking and occasionally making a placard and, and showing up to a protest. These are people who are risking their lives and their, their influence on me um, has been phenomenally profound. Um, uh, uh, and I, I could talk about um, uh, other friends throughout um, our region um, that uh, have or have not been colonised um, by the British um, and their impact on me as well, but um, maybe that's a a little bit of an introduction, Chef. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the answer. Awesome. So, Jared, just leading on from what you were just um, riffing on there about um, countries that uh, have and have not been colonised by the British, obviously in our uh, context here, 
Um, I'm a descendant of, of British settlers on these lands. Um, and so obviously as a community and individuals, we've been grappling over a um, long period of time now of uh, what does it look like to um, acknowledge those realities. And um, you talk a lot about uh, decolonizing faith as sometimes being an important, even a more important lens than deconstructing faith or reconfiguring faith or um, or whatever. Um, so I'd love you to um, speak a bit more if you're happy to about what, um, I guess, uh, what, what that means to you, why that is central to, to the way that you operate and, um, and what are the ways that you put that into practice in terms of seeking to, um, to practice faith in a way that um, is faithful to the God of the Exodus who liberates those who have been colonized and have been oppressed. Yeah, yeah great question, CJ. Um, uh, if I can, uh, I'm, I'm gonna read a text and, and then um, answer that question. Is, is that okay? Absolutely. Um, so for, for those who want to read along at home, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 20. And uh, in, in Matthew's telling, it's um, uh, the mother of um, uh, James and John. But we're going to pick it up in verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant about the two brothers. <laughs> it's an important question there about why. Why were they so indignant? Um, uh, is it that they didn't understand who the, the life and the shape of ministry of Jesus and that's why they're outraged? Or do they just want those like fancy jobs? They want the, those portfolios as well when Jesus came into power. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Um, so Gentiles meaning those who aren't formed by this story of the God of all creation, who hears the cries of the oppressed and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to serve, but be served and give his life as a ransom for many. And as N.T. Wright would remind us, um, uh, we need to take that language of ransom and put it in terms of this discussion of power. Um, there, there is lots of healthy talk of deconstructing at the moment. And CJ, for me, um, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, here on um, Noongar land, I was at Curtin University um, studying fine arts. Um, and so uh, philosophy is how we justified painting <laughs> sculpting so so everybody had to and so everybody's so anxious uh, about the fact that you know everybody else at university are doing real things and uh um we're working with a color palette that um it was really important to quote like Foucault and Derrida um Rorty and um mm. uh th these kind of um uh, philosophers, which even in the early 2000s were starting to become a little bit dated and not on the cutting edge, but what um, uh, deconstruction and postmodernism um, meant then um, as a, a, a literary genre, like a critique, um, and just very aware that it was a very European-centric um, discussion that didn't have 
it's not that it didn't have implications for um, uh, this work, but it didn't necessarily get there. And so when we use that language today, um, so few people are like interested in those like continental um, uh, philosophers um, uh, when they talk about deconstructing, but it, it is a useful kind of indication of something um, of where the conversation starts and stops. I think what it is for us to take seriously that to follow Jesus can't happen without becoming a not so with you people. Um, the importance of like how the White House meet and the fact that like you hear one another's voices and um, uh, that, you know, Jeff's role is to show up and make a joke as he makes space for everybody else. And this is leadership. And the reason why that's leadership is because of what Jesus actually embodied. Like the, this is actually if the reign of God or the kingdom of God um, or the kingdom of God or whatever um, language you'd like to use for the poetry that Jesus in, embodies and invites us into um, is something other than top down and is something about a restoring of relationships. Um, my mate, Mark Brett, who many of you know, um, Mark's an amazing theologian. He's got a great book called Decolonizing God. And um, he starts his first chapter with a discussion of um, Lynn Onus's painting, um, an Aboriginal artist. And it has, the painting is called, um, uh, And on the Eighth Day God Created. And it has two angels flying over this land that you can see um, on the bottom of uh, uh, across the landscape, um, almost like dot painting, uh, like, but these two angels are white and in their hands, one angel, um, carries a Bible and a, um, uh, a hand sanitizer, like, um, <laughs> disinfectant. So there's Bible and disinfectant in one angel's hand. And then the other is a, um, a sheep, um, and barbed wire. And it's, it's the artist way of actually naming that um, how the Bible arrived here was not in a way that um, saw um, uh, various societies living in peace and sharing all in common um, with right relationship with the land, each other um, and the creator of all, but um, in ways that actually played out um, the, the worst of Christian supremacy, um, which takes Christianity and makes it a chaplain to empire building and, um, decolonizing actually requires us to not simply put our faith back together in ways that no longer harms us, which is important and good and holy work. I don't want to take away from that. And if that's what deconstructing, um, means for you, like, hallelujah and amen um but let's make sure that we also get to putting our faith back together in ways that not only doesn't harm us it doesn't harm others and they're longer um uh, more broad historical discussions um that have got um so much to do with um how we consider ourselves in the world and the stories we tell and in terms of what that looks practically, um, a, a story about a friend who started to um, 
organised with Noongar elders for the first time here and asked for an introduction. And they were like, maybe we can meet at a coffee shop. Um, Thursday afternoons are good for me, anytime after 2.30. And um, uh, I'll bring the agenda. And I just had to say, say to this mate, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to come to my place. You're going to bring some kangaroo sausages. Um, uh, we'll provide the drinks. We'll fire up the barbie. Um, uh, we'll, we'll invite Annie Mingley, Uncle Ben, um, uh, some other elders around as well. And we're not going to talk about any kind of business stuff until they ask you why you wanted to meet. And they're like, look, the thing is with my time and I'm like, look, I, I get it. But any organizing you want to do for justice has to be done in a way that mm. isn't just about us and is actually just. And so many white fellow ways of working, um, which uh, it, it, it's determined upon um, come and fit into our way of. And so one of the things that um, Uncle Ben did as he sat on um, the, the patio out here is that he started to talk about all the birds that visit out front our place. And he invited us into the stories and um, he told some of his own stories. And then he asked about our stories and we shared stories and people are like, well, that's an interesting method of working. It's like, no, no, this is actually a way of seeing and being in the world. And what it is to actually come into relationship and realize that storytelling that isn't dialogical, but is actually communal, um, uh, let alone like a, <laughs> a mere lecture, um, that listens to the voices of parts of creation that are other than human, um, starts to learn that the environment um, is not uh, like an imagination that's formed by the scriptures. Um, there isn't us in the environment. There is creation of which we are a part and of which we have a role to play. And what it is to realize that we are never the first to worship. Like the rest of creation is already calling us to worship and crying out um, for those who actually live into their baptismal identity of becoming people of deliverance, not deliverance from creation, but the deliverance of creation by people who no longer lord power over others. And so decolonizing um, often means sitting at the feet of your local Aboriginal elders and realizing they'll say, what are you sitting down there? Come and sit next to me. Tell me about yourself. Let me tell you about yourself. Let me tell you some of these stories and being able to, to listen and learn in such ways that um, uh, the not so with us becomes such a reality that we become trusted. And instead of token kind of gestures to other um, uh, settler folk, it can actually be the kind of um, uh, real embodied community that heals what has happened in this land. Thanks, mate. That's that's so profound and practical. And um, yeah, I've I've just deeply appreciated. Um, you know, you talk a lot about how hope has to be embodied, practices have to be embodied, um, and just that call to actually embody with the way that we interact with others, the way that we seek out others and that listing and humble posture that, um, 
that's really helpful. So thanks. Um, I think that conversation segues into um, what you were just talking about, about uh, having to, for a lot of us who have grown up with a, uh, a Western, um, you know, European, whatever, capitalistic uh, kind of culture, mindset, um, that difference between viewing ourselves as a mere part of the creation as opposed to viewing ourselves as uh, superior, you know, the, the kind of superior class of beings who can, who can dominate and control creation. I think that, um, that is so critical. So I know that a lot of your um, activism in particularly in more recent times has been focused around um, issues of uh, climate change and the profound uh, ecological crises which which we are living to and which will continue to um, to escalate um, uh, I would love you to speak a bit about um, just into speak more into those issues of um, what it means to be faithful disciples in in an era. I mean, every era has its own crises and its own challenges. Um, so I would love you to speak a bit more to um, how we can put our faith into practice um, in ways which uh, honour the moment that we're in um, in that regard. Mm. Yeah, CJ, um, can I have permission to name drop? Please. Yeah, you know, um, look, J for full, like every time uh, Jared's on a Zoom with anyone, like Jared basically knows everyone. So Jar Jared has the longest list of names he could drop of probably literally anyone I know. This, <laughs> So feel free to drop names. And I probably should have dropped more names uh, and done a proper introduction for you. No, uh, no, no, no. Places you've been and the, the people you've hung with. So. What CJ is um, insisting is that Jared needs prayer, that this is a clear <laughs> sign that he's not secure in, in the love of Christ. Um, but do people know who Tim Flannery is? Is, is that a name that's meaningful for... Yeah, uh, yeah. Chris, I, I see that nod. Um, uh, so Tim Flannery is, is widely respected as, um, uh, you know, one of the most authoritative voices on um, climate science in our nation and has been honoured publicly as such. And we were doing a, um, a talk together for the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and we were the keynotes. And um, afterwards, uh, uh, everyone went to a pub and we were hanging out. And I, I said to Tim, um, what role do Christians have to play? Like we, we're living through an unprecedented ecological crisis. What role do Christians have to play and this was his answer and it was in this order love your neighbor and love god um i think what tim was trying to do was quote jesus um i like that he reversed it to make sure that um we realize that um <laughs> if we get jesus order um right way around it's, it's not actually an order it's um they're intertwined um there is no greater judgment or verdict. I mean, let, let's quote John 3, 19. Th this is the verdict. Everybody knows John 3, 16, but let's go 3, 19. Um, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world and you love darkness. There is no greater judgment, verdict, on 
our theologies than our ecological crisis. And if our faith has nothing to say to the fact that we as a species have lived in such ways that have come at the cost of the earth at the expense of the poor, that instead of healing all creation, instead of righting every wrong, instead of the first being last and the last being first, instead um, the first have been given more permission to rise above everybody else while so many others have been made last. Um, instead of God being all in all, there, there seems to be a, a pushing out of the creator from all that God created and so much theology has actually accompanied this, CJ. And so the question for all of us is how do we allow the light of, um, uh, as you so beautifully sung with your kids, like a radical affirmation of the sciences must be a reality for all Christian communities if they're going to be good news to our warming world. It's that simple. Um, th this kind of um, silly fundamentalism where we, we try and make the Bible do what the Bible was never meant to do to win some modernist argument that nobody is having that conversation anymore other than people who've got the baggage from <laughs> your 80s youth group moment or something. It's like, <laughs> like that's just not where um, we need to, as you so beautifully did um, at the start of your worship, um, give our children examples of how the sciences are to be embraced, not as um, a competitor, but as a companion to our faith, as it often has been historically, um, and not shy away from this moment, but realise that um, uh, what following Jesus uh, equips us for in ways that are gifts for others is um, a community to which organizes. We heard from Chris earlier that um, uh, as a community, people getting together to um, uh, like help some sister who the reality of um, her brother being killed in Afghanistan, um, the way that you love one another and those networks that you are building at White House community um, that are centered on those whom um, others push from the centre to the margins and you're seeking to, to re-centre and allow your lives to be about service to others, that the greatest amongst you will be a servant. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of Martin Luther King's most famous sermons, right? Like um, you, you don't need your verb and noun and verb to agree to serve. You don't need to know the second theory of thermodynamics to serve. Um, uh, what you need is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Anybody can be great because anybody can serve. As you become a community that is turned inside out towards those who are suffering and become sensitised to that suffering and mobilised together, not as individuals who burn out because you can't hold it yourself. Of course we can't hold it. But as you actually become a communal node in a larger network with a new imagination, an imagination of the world healed, that Jesus has been made right, and it's not held together by shame. It's held together by grace, by people who aren't better than others but are able to confess in community that I am part of the problem, and yet God and God's graciousness comes to us, sees all of that, and loves us so extravagantly and abundantly that we can actually show that to one another it's that kind of practical work which is actually of ecological importance in this moment. So we, we have this dual thing happening where people are realising that um, uh, 
the church has failed us and I no longer want to play these games. And there's this mass exodus from people going, I had hoped, but it's not happening that this is actually going to, and I don't want three points that all start with the letter A that have little to do with the radicalness of Jesus and more to do with um, self-help that's being watered down into um, something to be sold to me as spirituality. Mm. While that's happening, more than ever, we actually need real community where people can do all the one another stuff, bear with one another, grieve with one another, um, uh, love one another, like to, to read all that list. Um, desperately, the world needs spaces where we can have a one another when so many of us have been so individualized um, and commercialized that um, the only sense of self we have is a like social media self. Um, mm. People need to be embraced uh, to move from a call-out culture to a call-in culture of what it is to, to find a people who, who know my problems and will lovingly call me to who I've been named to be in my baptism. Um, and so I reckon Tim Flannery is onto something, CJ. I reckon Tim Flannery knows that what Christian's role in this moment is actually to get real busy rolling up our sleeves and loving our neighbour because we love God. Yeah. And as I saw you tweet during the week, like, you know, loving neighbor is, I should not be limited to human neighbors, you know, in the That's context right. of the climate crisis. Yeah. Uh, the, the magpie in my backyard is my neighbor. Uh, and the, the creek down the road is, is my neighbor. Yeah. As, as little Noah calls him Badi, um, which is a, a Noahization of Cool Badi, which is the Noongar name for magpie. Um, but as we were getting sw swooped yesterday, um, uh, Noah was like, Badi, Badi. <laughs> uh, awesome. I think I've got one more question on my list and then we might quickly open up the floor for a few minutes in case there are other burning questions from the room, if that's all right. So, And you've you kind of just and ended where I was going with this next question anyway, which, um, so feel to just say, CJ, I've already answered that. Let's move on. That's fine. <laughs> um, so like when you've been around the world a few times, you know, you've been, uh, you've ministered across continents and denominations, big church contexts, small church contexts. You've started a house church network at one point in time. Um, you know, so, uh, and there's a lot of like grappling and wrestling at the moment with what, particularly for those of us um, to aggress or a, a lesser or greater extent, extent who have had either negative experiences with church in the past, or as you were saying um, before, you know, the church has just got a different set of priorities and language to what's actually going on in the world and what people are really, you know, the things that people are grappling with in their lives. So um, I would love... Uh, any of reflections that you have on, you know, what are some of the things that make a, a healthy spiritual community? Like when you look to church um, practice and, and discipleship, um, rather than framing it in the negative of, you know, although you can talk to that if you want in terms of what we should be trying to avoid, but in a more forward looking sense, like what are the things, the practices that we need to be fostering as spiritual communities um, to, to try and actually create uh, you know, form ourselves in, in the way of Jesus um, as community. Yeah. I mean, this stuff really excites me. And those who um, uh, 
in fact, one of my last series at um, Sanctuary Church, where um, uh, it was the last time I was um, pastoring in a, in a mainstream kind of setting, um, that uh, the start of um, what 2020 actually became Hillsong, and we said, "Bless you lot," but um, in the words of Dylan, "It, it ain't me, babe." Um, so we um, we moved and uh, doing something else. Our last series was actually on um, not reinventing the practices, but the practices that are actually there for the church that are there to form us. And sadly, um, a, a realization and a consciousness around formation has been stripped by these practices. So for some Christians, it becomes um, a, a dry kind of uh, must do. And for others, it's what we left behind. And I'm thinking explicitly of um, things that were present for the early church. So the importance of meals together. Jesus was crucified for who he ate with, Marcus Borg insists. Um, uh, And he wasn't crucified by, like, bringing diverse people together who otherwise wouldn't get along. He was crucified for, like, um, including those that the systems deliberately exclude for the systems to run efficiently. And um, table practice and what we do around the table um, and how we do that while we're online and in lockdown and all the rest is is creative. Um, but what it is to take seriously that um, the table that is the Eucharist, um, as in Thanksgiving, um, uh, as in the Lord's Supper, um, as in communion, um, uh, these different languages, this was central to the early Christians. I think much less than a sermon, what's important is a meal together as we gather um, and to realise that our politics are contained in this meal and that this meal features in a story which should open up our imagination. So in the um, in, in a Jewish sense, like in the uh, Tanakh um, and um, uh, the Mishnah, it, it talks about how each generation, um, and I'll make it gender-inclusive, um, uh, um, uh, m- must um, in- engage as if it was them themselves um, walking out of Egypt. There's Jared's paraphrase. Um, so th- there was a sense that uh, when you share the Passover, it's it was a time machine. Um, it, it it wasn't you going into the past, but the past like actually coming into you. And Jesus takes, uh, at least in the synoptics, um, takes um, the Passover meal and makes it the paradigm for his meal, his final meal. And um, uh, in, in, of, in terms of First Corinthians um, and talk of whenever you um, do this, you do this in remembrance of me, that wasn't some intellectual ascension. It was actually about being remembered. And so for us, the table has to become the place where our politics become real. It's about sharing, as in those who don't have actually are fed. Um, and Paul says, like, if, if some of you are starving while others of you are stuffing your face, um, you have, like, emptied all of this of its power. Like, you've actually... Um, like eaten judgment you've you've emptied this should be something that brings the past into the present and brings the future into the present to say christ is is to talk about uh, the mishiach the messiah who was going to bring the messianic age which would heal all things so every time we talk about like in christ it's like 
The future that God has in mind is coming here to take up home with us. And the, the practice of the table as a radical affirmation of the politics of redistribution, of what it is to be a people who um, uh, family, uh, as important as it is, isn't allowed to become an ideology where we separate our finances from those who are suffering in our community. And we create the kind of social, uh, like the thickness that sociologists describe, where we trust one another, confess with one another, can be vulnerable with one another, share with one another in such ways that we bring God's future, the healing of all things into the present, where we bring the exodus, God's deliverance in the past into the present. We bring what God has done in Christ, um, the, the new exodus, and we make it our personal reality. Um, that has to become a central practice for us as well. Scott McKnight helpfully um, says that, um, and Walter Brueggemann insists on this as well, that so much of our talk of communion has um, featured in the sin forgiveness kind of categories, and that is definitely present, um, but it is not the only categories. We, we've got to rediscover um, mm. uh, not just sin forgiveness present in our taking of communion, but actually redistribution, um, reincorporation, wow. what it is to be a new family. And so... Um, Yes, it's it's about realizing that um, there is forgiveness, but forgiveness in the Jewish imagination and the importance of forgiveness and why it was scandalous Jesus declaring you were forgiven and um, get up and walk is that um, the get up and walk bit was clearly God's future happening now. But forgiveness is what was necessary for God's future to break in. So for Jesus to declare that somebody is forgiven is to say that God's future has permission over this moment right now. And so we need to hear forgiveness again as permission that everything changes now, that there is a new reality opening up now. And we've got to take um, uh, the, the Eucharist more seriously, um, uh, not in ways that transport us somewhere else, but bring what God desires into the present. And so um, practices that can accompany that confession, like, I don't know if you lot pass the peace, um, those who have been formed in like um, Catholic and Anglican circles, um, uh, peace with you also with you or with the new um, liturgies um, in the Catholic churches um, with your spirit, which um, people have mixed feelings uh, about. But the importance of that is actually a practice of like Matthew five, before you give your offering, um, reconcile with one another. The imperative in that is go quickly and um, say, are we good? And so every time we gather like on a Sunday, it should be, are we good? Like we're gathering on the Sunday because it's supposed to be like a reference to the resurrection and the resurrection isn't about our souls going somewhere else. It's about God's new world happening right here. It's a cosmic cleanup of all of creation, as Crossan puts it, happening right now. And so we gather on a Sunday to go, we're a community of this cosmic cleanup. And it starts with the practice of going. Yeah, what happens I'll... when we get sand in our eyes? Do you know what happens? It's a very practical question, the sand <laughs> in our eyes. And to refer to Mr. Peter, I think like the question is, if we get sand in our eyes from somebody else in the congregation during the week, what do we do with that? See, master, see, that's what you call a segue. Um, <laughs> And the question is, how do we be good with one another? Like, how can we be reconciled with one another when we do throw sand in our eyes? 
and the importance of like whether it's shaking hands or greeting one another with holy kisses and being able to go are we good is it means that we don't empty communion of its power but we actually come as a reconciled community and then we can offer to others that we've taken like restorative justice so seriously that in our communities we can be a voice for restorative justice and hold up a vision mm -hmm. of our like um, criminal justice systems and take restorative justice seriously, but also in our activist circles where it can be so punitive and um, uh, 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 so um, uh, demonstrably cruel sometimes that we can actually hold up a, a vision for restorative justice and win more campaigns because there is a sense of kindness as a practicality before us, mm. not as an ideal, but because the White House are a people who practice restorative justice that before they take communion, they make sure that they're reconciled and it means something. It's not a covering up of what has gone wrong. It's an exposing and it's a listing. And so um, in a real practical sense, I think everybody should read as much restorative justice, like practice kind of stuff, and then incorporate it into their Sunday meeting. Um, so there's two little practices, CJ, uh, about how um, at both the communion table, not just simply as like um, sin forgiveness, um, but as redistribution and economic practice and um, greeting one another with holy kisses, um, passing the peace can be a, a practice of reconciliation. How's that? That's, that's beautiful. My mind is, is blown. <laughs> and that's just, uh, yeah, that was amazing on on several levels. I'm going to have to listen to this back and like take a while to digest some of this because there's just been so much gold in here. Uh, but, oh man. Um, all right. We are, we are. So thank you. Thank you, brother. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we will talk more about the table and about confession in the months to come. Um, all right, we're just about to hit 12 o'clock, so we, we want to be uh, honouring of your time, Jared. Um, I just want to say on a personal note how grateful I am um, to have discovered your uh, your influence and, and more than just uh, the work that you do directly, but the voices that you've introduced me to through Inverse Podcast. Mm. Um, it has just opened up entire new worlds of... Um, of, of what the liberating gospel of Jesus is is about. So on a personal note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to be here with us. Um, I did say we would at least give the floor one chance for a shout. So if anyone has one quick burning question, uh, speak now or uh, forever hold your peace or something. <laughs> is there anything else that we really um, want to ask Jared before he um, goes about the rest of his morning? I've got lots of questions, but it's not going to be short. So I'm hoping to kind of have an <laughs> offline chat. <laughs> I've got like at least four, but I'm not going to put it out here because it's going to be a while. So if there's any other way to kind of email or something, I would be very appreciative. Sure. The, the, the trick is, Chevelle, if you just join one of the inverse book clubs and hang around for long enough several, several <laughs> so hours true. into the zoom you so will get true. a chance to ask jared whatever yeah. you want yeah. <laughs> we will do our best to get um, jared to come along again perhaps as well and maybe we can uh, ask some follow-up questions can, can i offer something as we close yeah 
Um, I'm so aware that um, when this is approached as ideas, it can be overwhelming. Like it can seem mm. like so many different subjects. We're, um, we're actually talking about the same thing um, all the time. It's mm. who, who does Jesus reveal God to be? Um, and uh, Steve Chalk, who's a Baptist minister in the UK, he has a helpful analogy of a, um, a jigsaw puzzle. And um, uh, on, on the front of the box is the face of Jesus. This is a metaphor. <laughs> um, and we've lost the top of the box. But what we've got is all these pieces. And we know that pieces are important. And so many people are just like jamming jigsaw pieces in together. And even though the picture is ugly and what you see doesn't look like Jesus, people are like, like I know these pieces are important. This is an invitation to, to stop forcing things where they don't go, but also don't throw out those different pieces. It's quite possible that the things that have harmed us previously have harmed us not because they're bad, but because they've been put in the wrong place. And what is it for us to look to Jesus, see his face, and then place those things in ways that look more and more like him. It's a gentle process. It's a tender process. It's a process that's led by the spirit. Mm. It's a process that inherently heals. If your theology isn't healing you, the earth, others, mm. there, there is something that is actually not looking like Jesus in it. So my encouragement to you all is don't be overwhelmed with all the different pieces. Whole thing we've been doing at the same time is giving Jared permission to go, Jared, where do these pictures fit in light of what you've seen of Jesus? Mm. Bless you lot. Thanks, mate. We might, uh, so just two very quick um, things. So we did get a question on, uh, if you had to pick out like three episodes, for those of us, some of us like me are in way too deep with inverse. So like we've <laughs> listened to just about everything you've said on the record in the last three years. But for those of us who haven't engaged uh, as deeply, do you have like a top three uh, episodes of inverse that you would like send people to as a, as a starting point? Well, clearly Luke and Mark's episode Absolutely. Is, a, is a must listen. Is Luke uh, is Luke on the line? I'm not, I can't see oh, whether Luke's have mentioned it on the Zoom or not. Ah, oh, Luke, <laughs> it's so great to have you here, buddy. And we sh I should have definitely left time for you to ask some questions. But, yeah, the, so we've got the Glanville's episode. Um, um, and yeah, I, no, but seriously, that's, that's great. And um, the book is so phenomenal, and some of us have journeyed with that and know that yeah. uh, firsthand. Um, and then it's a question of what you're really um, into. Like uh, I found Will, uh, Dr. Reverend Will Gaffney's recent episode quite challenging, um, even though I, I love her stuff. She, she always makes me rethink. So if that's what you're looking for, I found um, uh, Reverend Dr. Chris Green's episode on Hebrews, just mm. so exciting and phenomenal and um uh, that one, if you're, if you're looking to reread the book of Hebrews in light of nonviolent atonement, it is, uh, it's something. Um, and he's been so inspired by that. He actually wants to now do a book on that. So, nice. um, he, he, he was feeling it was a, a good one as well. Um, Dr. Willie James Jennings is one of my biggest influences. I think his work and um, the Christian imagination is not an easy read at all, but it's really important. Um, 
his book after whiteness on white supremacy and education um is phenomenal but that episode and um what it opens up i think is really great but um to tell you the truth i don't know if there's been many bad episodes so i encourage you to start um anywhere um and one of the things <laughs> that's not because of me it's just because of the people we get on right and yeah. one of the things is because we're asking about people's journeys um it means that whether it's Father Bob or um, Alice Fraser or, you know, Will Anderson or um, Tom Ballard um, uh, or more theological voices, that all of them are just sharing their story and, and their own encounters with the Bible. And I think there's always something to learn by listening to others on any subject, let alone on something that's so important to us. Awesome. So we'll let everyone go off and find uh, uh, what they want to listen to. Um, real quick, how can we be praying for you in this season? And then would you be kind enough to close us off by, by praying for us? And we'll, and we'll wrap up right there. Um, oh, thanks, CJ. Yeah, um, I really appreciate the question. Uh, if, if you pray that I would increase in my openness and tenderness to the Holy Spirit. That That's an ongoing prayer for me. And I think some of the most important prophetic work we can be doing is um, the early Quakers continually use the words um, tender about the Holy Spirit's visitations in their meeting. And that's my prayer. Um, uh, <laughs> financially as well we've got another baby coming in um i'm no longer doing stuff overseas because of all of this so um uh everybody's welcome to become a patreon or just pray for <laughs> please pray, everyone pray for join finances. the patreon <laughs> um uh what an honor to be asked to pray for you lot let me let me do that now thank you Precious Lord, uh, you are holy and worthy of our praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Lord, your holiness is revealed as a love that leaves no one out. Jesus, would you wash us in that love? May we be immersed in that love. May our baptisms be new to us again today. May we die to all that is false in ourself, all the false narratives that taught us that we were something more or less than your child and the rest of your children. All the stories that said we were more or less than your beloved. We ask that that would be left behind and we would rise with you to walk with you in your resurrection. Lord, teach us to love ourselves that we might love our neighbours well. Lord, bring us back to your love for us so we know that you first loved us and gave yourself as a atoning offering. And we thank you for that. May that pattern of that love that empties, that heals, that puts things into right relationship, may that move through us and in us. We thank you for the White House community. We thank you for um, this beautiful little hub, this node of grace. Um, we ask that people would be gentle with each other. We ask that 
they'll develop the kind of vulnerability where people can confess addictions and find grace to lead them into a new way of being. We thank you for um, those who invest time and leadership. We thank you for all these dear children and we pray for uh, protection and flourishing for them. In all this, Lord, we ask that we might be incorporated deeper and deeper into the love that you are to live that love. Lord, would you make us witnesses to the beauty that is your love? We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thanks, friends. Thank you. Thank you so much, brother. Blessings on the rest of your day, and we will um, we'll be praying for you. And uh, we just deeply appreciate you coming along. So, of bless you, and uh, yeah, <laughs> see ya. And we'll uh, we'll we'll be talking soon. That'd be great. Take care, friends. Bye. All right, love you, mate. Yeah, Bye. See you, you too. See you.